Good morning. Excellent. If you have your copy of Scripture, go ahead and turn to Exodus chapter 25. That's where we find ourselves. If you remember, we covered all of chapter 24 last week, and that's the picture of God inviting them up on the mountain. You remember Moses goes a little further than everyone else. Joshua's not too far off. The 70 elders are up there. Nadab, Abihu, uh, Aaron, Moses' brother. They've all been invited up on the mountain. Now, you've got to understand that progression to really see uh, what, we, what we have here. You remember um, at first when God was delivering the 10 words, no one was allowed even to get near the mountain. Okay? Now, after he's delivered that, and there's been some explanation about how this is to be lived out, all of this is happening at the same time. So even though we're spending weeks on this and like looking at it in these little bite-sized chunks, you got to keep in mind that as we read each one of these, this is all happening simultaneously. It's all, all just kind of keep, keeps flowing, if you will. So after the explanation... There is this invitation for Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu, which are Aaron's children, his two sons, and the 70 elders, and they come up. And and if you remember, this was like the ratifying of the covenant. Uh, The covenant's been issued. Um, They asked, do you agree to these terms? They're like, yes, we will be obedient. We will do everything that the Lord tells us, right? And um, so now they've sealed it with a meal. Now, I don't know how many of you, when you think of God, and I just ask you right now, I want you to think of God or maybe give me some words that describe God. I don't know what the first word that would come to your mind is, but let me ask you this. Is it partying? Is that the first word? Is it feasting? But here's the thing. When you look at Scripture, how could you not come to that conclusion? I mean, the whole thing opens with God planting a garden and saying, eat of any tree that you want, just this one, don't eat of it, at least you die. But any other tree in the garden, you can have it. It's all yours. Whenever he rescues them from Egypt, he says, before I finally rescue you, I want you to gather around and I want you to have a meal. And I'm going to bring significance to this meal. As a matter of fact, you're going to have this meal every year to remember what happened here. The whole scripture ends with the culmination of all that happens. We gather around a table. And we eat at the marriage feast of the Lamb. I mean, you think about how significant food is. Remember Jesus, uh, when he was walking this earth, what did they accuse him of? He eats with tax collectors and sinners. I mean, he's sharing meals. This is God in the flesh come to be with his people. What did Jesus say? I've longed to do this with you. Share the Passover meal with his disciples. So over and over again, every time we see this picture of God, it's a God who loves feasting, a God who loves partying. And I don't mean that in the frivolous kind of way. I mean it in the sense of life on life and enjoyment and celebration. This is what he's about. I mean, go to Leviticus, and he gives a whole chapter, actually a few chapters, on uh, seven feasts that I want you to celebrate every single year. And six of them surround themselves around a harvest of some sort. I mean, again, when we see what happened last week and God invites them up and says, I want you guys to come up here and we're going to eat together, that's significant because it's telling us who God is. And I think sometimes we are so divorced from the true character of God because we've made up in our minds who we think he is. He stands way up there on the mountain and he's way far off and he never eats because he doesn't need to and he never sleeps because he doesn't need to. And yet the scripture says that he rests and it says that he 
loves a feast. And he's implementing them over and over and over again. Which, which again, I, I think that we need to be careful and make sure that Scripture is informing our view of God and not just what we think in our head. Because what we get to in this next section, beginning in verse or chapter 25, is God saying, okay, now that we are out of Egypt, now that we have ratified this covenant between us, I'm your God, you're my people, now something even more significant is going to happen. Okay, I want to remind you again, let's go back for a moment, it won't take but a second to remind ourselves of this. But from the beginning of Exodus all the way until we find the 10 words on Mount Sinai, we were showing you how there is actually a marriage of a Jewish bride and groom taking place throughout the entire book of Exodus. What I mean is if you were to have a Jewish wedding ceremony and follow through the different parts of a Jewish wedding ceremony, you see every single one of them in the book of Exodus. Okay, now what happens after... There is the sharing of the vows, and it's been ratified. You eat, right? And then, after you eat, you go and live together. The next part of Exodus is God saying, I'm not going to stay up on this mountain. I'm going to come down and live with you. Now, this is radical, because if you go back and look at all the Canaanite gods... They all stayed on mountains. Go look at the Greek gods, the Roman gods. They all have their pantheons. They all have their mountains. They all have their planets that they're from. They don't come down and mingle with us, us dirty, normal humans. They are very far off. If they came close to us, we would taint them in some way. And yet what we find here is as they entered into this covenant, God says, I'm not okay with just staying on this mountain and Moses coming up here every once in a while. I want to create a scenario where I can come and dwell among you. I want to be with you. I mean, think about the beauty of that. Think about that in connection with this whole marriage ceremony, the covenant that's made, the feasting that happens, and now God wants to come and be with his people. That's what we find. That's the beginning of this right here. Now look at verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, that should be your memory verse this week, okay? All you people say, I can't memorize. What did it say? And you say you can't memorize scripture. It's right there. Think about that. That's good. All right, so the Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. I want you to understand that twice in that sentence, in that phrase, you find words that are so important to understanding what's happening here. And the word, the phrase is, for me. For me. Now, there's some things in this verse 2 that I think are, are striking. Imagine a moment the scene that's, that's actually taking place here and what's all happening. Remember, we've set it up. There's, they've had this meal. They've shared this. Uh, it, it's this incredible uh, ratifying of the covenant. There is this beauty of the eating and the feasting. Moses has walked a little further than the rest of them into this cloud, this mystery of who God is, his presence. And, and Joshua's not too far off. The 70 elders are still up there. Now, there's a couple of things to notice here. 
First of all, at this moment is where God starts and he says, Moses, I want you to take up a contribution from the people. Now, first and foremost, I want you to notice that the contribution is for God. He doesn't say, I want you to take up a contribution for the tabernacle. He doesn't say, I want you to take up a contribution for the people. He says, I want you to take up a contribution for me. Why is that significant? I think it's significant because it goes to the heart of why we give money to the church or to some parachurch organization or or maybe somebody in need. Why do we do that? Well, if your heart is in the right place, you do it because you can't get over the fact that God has loved you, redeemed you, and blessed you. And your perspective is, he has been so good to me, how can I not emulate that by being good to others in return? How, how could I not give if this is the character of the God that I love, that I worship, that I serve? Notice that God centers it around himself. He doesn't paint this picture of, hey, um, I want you to know that I've got some great plans and this is going to have a great benefit for y'all and you're going to love this, but I need you to give me some money before we do it. He doesn't feel like he has to prove himself. He doesn't feel like he has to justify this request, which leads me to my second point. God asks for the contribution to be made before he even tells them what it's for. He says, I want you to take up a contribution. Um, and, and here's what you're going to do. You're going to take gold from them. You're going to take silver. Uh, you're gonna, they're going to bring in all these precious stones. Um, we're going to bring in some wood. But he still doesn't tell them what he's going to build until a little later on. Why does God do it that way? Well, I think he does it that way because he wants to center the giving around understanding who he is and who they are. Now, when you get into this a little further, what you find is the request is astonishing. If you were to value... Okay, now again, I want to remind you that the tabernacle itself is not even as big as this room right here. Okay, now when you add the courtyard in and everything like that, it's not even as big as half of a football field. Okay, but the tabernacle itself probably would fit on this half of a basketball court. Right? That part, if you were to equate it to today's dollars, $13 million dollars is how much went into that one tent. When you begin to weigh out the gold, the silver, all the precious jewels that he's saying that they're going to bring in, $13 million. And, and listen, when you look at it, it's just a tent. I mean, like you look at it on the outside, it's just got a bunch of animal skins on it. The gold is really on the inside. So it's not even something that you see from the outside. God makes this pretty... Now, here's the thing. Where in the world do people wandering around the wilderness get $13 million worth of gold from? They got it from Egypt. Did they earn it? Did they fight for it? Can they call it their own? No. 
when God visited the last of the ten plagues on Egypt, the Egyptians were so ready for them to leave, they were handing stuff over to them. Please take this, take that, take this with you, take the jewelry, take these fine linen clothes, take all of these threads, take everything with you. Please just get out of here. And so they're walking out, I mean slaves walking out, wealthy people. And so after this ratifying of the covenant, God does this very interesting thing. I think he does this because he wants to see where their heart is. He's saying, hey, will you contribute some of what you have for this building? The reason I think that's significant is because oftentimes God calls us to give 10% the tithe, right? And I think that he does that because he wants to see how we view or, or what our perspective is of the things that we have. You know, think about it. A lot of times we only give if we feel like we're getting something from it. I grew up in a church. They had building programs, you know, that all the time they were having a building program. And it was amazing the infighting that you would have in the church because one time they wanted to build a, uh, a gym, I guess like a Christian life center or something like that. And, you know, half the people in the church are like, that's awesome. And the other half, like, that's a waste of money. I'm not contributing to that. And then there was another time where they wanted to build a campus for the school. And half the church was like, yes, because my kids go to that school. And the other half were like, I don't want to spend my tithe money on a school that none of my kids go to. I, my kids are already grown. I don't get anything out of that. And you see, the perspective there is, do we really give to God based on what we're going to get out of it? Or do we understand that we give because we've been given to? And, and we are emulating the God that we worship, that we love, that we serve. We want to be more and more like him. The third thing I want to point out for this verse too is this. Notice that it's a voluntary contribution. No one is compelled to give. Look again at what it says in verse 2. Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution from every man. What does it say next? Whose heart moves him. You shall receive the contribution for me. How in the world is this man's heart going to be moved? Because as soon as the request comes forward and says, God has asked that we make a contribution to him. And the heart of the man that God's looking for says, yes, count me into this. Well, wait a minute, I haven't told you what it's for. It didn't matter what it's for. I mean, I wouldn't have anything if it wasn't God delivering us from Egypt. If it wasn't for him standing up to Pharaoh. If it wasn't for him visiting his wrath on all those false gods. Us walking out. I had nothing. I was a slave. And now I have gold and silver and all these things. Yes, whatever God wants, God gets it. That's what he's looking for. Whoever's talking. Because God doesn't want the treasures of someone who's like, well, what does he want it for? Because you know what that says? God, qualify yourself to me. Show me what you're going to do with it. And then I'll tell you if I think that's a wise decision or not. You see, at Mars Hill, you've gone here long enough, or maybe you're visiting, and you probably wonder, why in the world do they not pass an offering plate? Well, the, the heart of it is really centered in this. I know that lots of churches do, and I'm not saying it's a bad thing to do it. But I do know that I grew up in a church like that, and there's that pressure that you feel when that little plate comes by, you know, and you're like, oh. I even know of people, and I'm not, I'm not making this up, this is true, who would put empty 
tithing envelopes in the thing and pass it on because they didn't want to look like the jerk that just kind of passed it on and didn't put anything in it. You know, those little envelopes were in the back, so they would just kind of take it out and write something on it, and they would put it in there, and it looked like they were given something, you know. Um, and, and so there's this, this, this compulsion that people had to put something in it. Well, here's the thing. The scripture says that's not the way you should give. So what we did when we started Morris Hill almost 20 years ago in Mobile is we started with a joy box. That's what we've done from day one. We've never passed an offering ever in 20 years. And the reason we call it a joy box is because the scripture tells us that God loves a cheerful giver. So we thought, what better thing to call it than the joy box? Now, we've had people tell us, man, if you would just pass an offering plate, y'all would have so much more money. I mean, people would give. There are people that literally come here, and if you pass an offering plate, they're going to put it in there. But if you don't pass an offering plate, they're just going to hold on to it. They're going to think that you just don't take. And, 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 and my response to that is this. If you have a heart to give, nothing's going to stop you from giving. And I can tell you, there's people who have come up to me or Neil or Joe and said, listen, I've got some money I want to give to this church, and I can't figure out how to give it to it. Where, where, where do I give this money? Guess what? In their heart, they were compelled to give to the point that they went and tried to find it out. See, that's the heart that God's looking for. Someone who says, you know what, I've been blessed of the Lord and I love being a part of God's community or I love being a part of the service or the mission field or whatever it may be that God's calling you to and you can't help but give. And, and you give and you're thinking, I want to give more than what I can give right now because I think this is an amazing thing and I just think about what God did for me and how he saved me and how he redeemed me and I can't help but be and want to be more and more like this God that I love and serve. It's a voluntary contribution. What happens a lot of times is giving becomes something that's very um, religious. And, and you know, it's amazing because as much as we like to highlight the early church, you know, in Acts, uh, we're like, man, if we could just be like that again. But I want to remind you that the uh, church in Acts starts going south really fast. Uh, you got chapter 2 where they're you know, selling things and making sure that everybody's taken care of. You got chapter 4, they're selling houses and land to make sure everyone's taken care of. And it's not very far after that that you got Ananias and Sapphira who come forward and you have the first death in the church. Okay? Why? Because they sold a piece of land because everybody's getting into this and they're like, man, this is awesome. And, and, and oh, look at what this guy did. Look what that guy did. You're not going to believe what you know, Zacchaeus did. He went and sold his um, wee little tree farm and he uh, gave all the money that he got to this. And, and, and so now all of a sudden it's like you hear all these people being talked about and you're like, wow, I, I, I could do that. And so Ananias and Sapphira, they go and they sell this piece of land. They take the income from it and they put some of it in their pocket. And then they go and they set the rest of it down at Peter's feet and say, we have sold this piece of land and we're giving all the profits to the church. And Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, says, is this the complete price that you got from the land? You sold the land for this and you're given everything that you made off of it? Oh, absolutely. And Peter's response is, is very pointed. He says this, why are you lying? Nobody told you you even had to do this. 
And yet, some, more, some reason in your mind, in your heart, in your head, you're willing to lie to gain some kind of favor with other men? I mean, what, what, what's behind that? And where is God in this? What is your motivation for giving is what he's saying. Of course, they end up dying because of, of this lie that they bought into. But that's the thing is it becomes very religious after a while if you're not very careful with your heart and, and your perspective of things. Look how it continues in verse 3. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze. Blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twin linen, goat's hairs, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense. Onyx stones, the stones for setting, for the ephod, and for the breastpiece. Now, what he's talking about there is the vesture of the high priest. So he would have what was called an ephod. On the ephod, there were these 12 stones. Each one represented each tribe of Israel. And, and he would have this little gold plate on it, both here and on his headdress, that said, Holy Holiness to the Lord, because that's what the high priest stood for, as he was the one who was to preach the holiness of God, call people to the holiness of God, to protect the ceremony and the rituals of the holiness of God. So that's what he represented. That's what those stones are for. So there are very expensive materials. Like I told you, $13 million, and that's just the cost of the materials. That doesn't even account for the craftsmanship that goes into making everything here, okay? Not only that, when you bring all these materials together, it is literally nine tons of building materials. Now, what is the difference between the tabernacle and the temple? Do you know that? You've heard people probably interchange those words a lot. Do you know the difference between those two? There's really not a lot of difference in the sense of functionality. Uh, the tabernacle has a courtyard, the holy place, and the holy of holies. The temple had the same thing, except it was bigger. It had courtyards outside the courtyards. Okay? Here's the way to remember it is the tabernacle was meant to be a temporary place, and it was meant to be mobile, so you had to be able to move it. Because remember, they wandered around in the wilderness, so they had to take this thing down, and they have to move it around with them. Okay, so here's the thing. When we think about, oh, yeah, the tabernacle is while they were wandering around in the wilderness. You know, so that 40 years they were around, they were wandering around, but once they got into the land, they built the temple. But here's one thing I want you to realize. You realize the function of Israel's worship centered around the tabernacle for over 500 years. It was 500 years before they ever built the first temple. I mean, you think about it, the tabernacle was not just the wandering time. It was also during the time of Joshua and the conquest of the land. And beyond that, it, it was what they had during the time of the judges. And then it was the, what they had in the reign of Saul. It was what they had in the reign of David. It wasn't until Solomon that they actually build a permanent dwelling for God's presence in Jerusalem. Okay. So think about this. America is not even 300 years old yet. And they used the tabernacle for 500 years. So this was literally the center of worship for Israel. Not only was it the center of worship for Israel, it was very important to understand the centrality of the tabernacle. We're going to get a little further. We're going to go look at numbers, kind of bring in some information there. But when you go to numbers, God gives them specific instructions on how to camp around the tabernacle. 
And it's going to say, hey, you three tribes, y'all are going to camp to the north. You three tribes, y'all are going to camp to the south. You three tribes to the east. You three tribes to the west. Okay. Then the, the uh, Levites are going to be scattered throughout all of them really close to the, t- the tabernacle because they're the ones who actually participate and take care of all the ceremonies that happen inside the tabernacle. So whenever you see that, it's not just out of convenience, but it's out of purpose. Because again, one thing that you're going to find in this text that you're going to see a lot is the word pattern. That God is a God of patterns. And one of the patterns that you're going to see is that God is always calling his people to understand that they have to center themselves around him. So even in the way that they're camping, all the tribes face into the tabernacle. God is literally the center of all of their camp. Okay? He's in the very middle. So not only central is the presence of God, it's also the sacrifice and the substitute and the, the, the sacrificial system. That's central to who they are as well. Now, to understand the significance of this, you have to understand the difference in a Hebrew mindset and a Greek mindset. We are very much influenced from Greek mindsets. It's just a part of our Western culture. It's not bad or good. It's just the facts. Okay? And so in a, with a Greek mindset, we tend to compartmentalize things. So think of it as like a tic-tac-toe board, you know, and you got these little squares. And what we do is we'll, we will compartmentalize our life. We're like, this is my hobbies, and this is my family, and this is my work. This is my religious and church life. And, you know, you could just keep on going. And we tend to separate them out. And that's the reason we can, you know, kind of act one way in one setting and turn around and act a different way in a different setting. Have you ever known someone like that? Have you ever been that person? They don't have to raise your hand. But that's the way we think. It's also affected our medicine. Think about the medicine, uh, you know, the medical field. You go to a heart doctor. You go to a lung doctor. You don't really have, like, a doctor that just kind of does everything, you know. He's like, oh, I can handle it. No, we, we specialize. Why? Because we've been influenced by that idea of compartmentalizing. We think, well, if this guy just focuses in on the heart. And so you might go and the guy's like, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, I can't help you. Your issue is a lung issue. I'm a heart doctor. You need to go see that guy. Now, that doesn't mean that the heart doctor knows absolutely nothing about the lung. I'm sure that came up in class at some point or another. And I'm sure there is some connectivity to that. But the idea is this is my specialty and this is the other person's specialty. You'll have to go to the other square to get help with that perspective. Now that's a Western mindset, but the the Jews do not think that way. Hebraic philosophers do not think in compartmentalization. They think in concentric circles. So think of a dartboard, you know, and you have that bullseye in the very middle, and then you have the circles that get bigger and bigger around it. So the Jewish mindset is this. Everybody has something that's at the center of their life, and whatever that thing is at the center is impacting everything around it, okay? And so whatever's in the very center is impacting that second thing. And that center and second thing is impacting the third. And the center and and second and third and fourth are impacting that fifth. So however you are prioritizing your life, whatever's at the center is impacting everything from that point forward all the way out to the end. This is why for the Jewish people, their mantra is, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. What are they talking about? They're talking about making God the center of who you are, that every thought that you have, whenever you spend money or you spend time or you 
use your talents, whatever it may be, that somehow in your mindset you're asking yourself, how am I honoring God with these things? Why? Because God has become central. Your relationship with him has become central. So you think about him when you get up and when you lay down, when you walk down the road, when you're talking with your kids, when you're talking with your friends, God becomes central. Now that's not talking about a religious nut. It's talking about someone who has such a perspective of God that they're always thinking and considering him with everything that they do. That's what it means to center yourself around God. Now, these are very expensive materials that we talk about here. We, we talked about how you also, you know that they got them from Egypt. And it's almost like God gave them all of these things. And he gave them all of these things and now he's seeing, I've given you all of this wealth. Now I want to see if you'll trust me with 10% of it or whatever your heart's desire is to give. I want to see if you recognize where this came from to the point that when I ask for you to give it back in some form or fashion, that your reaction in giving it actually reflects your understanding of how you got it. Okay? Now, there's also some progression here. Look at verse 3. The gold, silver, and bronze is the first thing that he mentions. Well, that's for all the furniture that's going to be built. Now, again, I know that you're thinking, I didn't even know the tabernacle had furniture in it. What kind of sofa was it? It was not a sofa. They do call it furniture, but it's not furniture the way we think about it. They didn't go to rooms to go or anything like that and get it. It's not even furniture that you can sit on. It's usable stuff. It's like the bronze altar is called a piece of furniture. The bronze laver is called a piece of furniture. So if you will for a moment, we'll have more of this diagram in weeks to come, but um, I want you to just visualize this for a moment. Think of a big old rectangle, okay? And in that big old rectangle, that's the courtyard, there's a smaller rectangle in the middle of it, and that is the tabernacle itself. So there's a big courtyard around that space. So if you were to walk into the gate at the bottom, the first thing you would come across is the bronze altar. This is where they would make the sacrifices, the burnt offerings. That's where it takes place. Just beyond that is the bronze laver. And the bronze laver sits right in front of the door of the tabernacle. Now here's what's interesting. Everything on the outside of the tabernacle is bronze. Everything on the inside of the tabernacle is gold. The reason is everything on the outside represents man and bronze represents man. That's what it's connected to. Gold is represented by God, or God is represented by gold. So gold speaks to deity, okay? And it speaks to kingliness. So everything inside the tabernacle, gold. Everything outside the tabernacle, bronze, okay? So once you walk into the tabernacle, the first room you come into, because the big tabernacle itself has two rooms, the holy place and the holy of holies. When you walk into the holy place, you have three pieces of furniture in there. So as you walk in, to your left you would look and there would be this huge menorah, okay? It's made of gold. Here's what's crazy. You ever seen a menorah? You know, this thing that has all the, the seven. This menorah in the tabernacle was hammered out of one piece of gold. One piece of gold. It was not put together. They didn't screw it on there with like some kind of fancy you know, equipment. They didn't have anything like that. It was literally hammered out of one piece of gold. You talk about the craftsmanship of something like that. So that's on the left. In front of you is this huge curtain that hangs down. And this curtain isn't inches thick. It's feet thick. 
Okay, that's how thick it is. That's what all of this linen is used for. Now, once they make that, you would see the, back, the backdrop of that. To the right of it would be the altar of incense, also made of gold. To your right, as you walk in, would be the table of showbread, also made of gold. Now, as you were to walk past this curtain, which, by the way, has the image of two cherubim on it facing each other, because once you go into the Holy of Holies, that's what you see because once you walk into the Holy of Holies, there's two more pieces of furniture. It looks like one, but it's actually two. It is the Ark of the Covenant, which is the bottom part, the box. And then it has what's called the mercy seat, which sits on top of it. It's kind of the lid. Now, those are actually thought of as two different pieces, but they are connected. So it looks like one. Okay? So you end up having seven pieces of furniture. Think about that for a moment. Again, we talk about patterns that we see throughout Scripture. So all of this relates to who God is. Now, whenever you see this mentioned here, you see that progression, the gold and the silver and bronze, all the furniture. Look at verse 4. All those linens and, and threads and all that that they're going to use, that's to make the curtain. Uh, verse 5, all the wood is made to build the frame of the tabernacle. Verse 6 is what goes into the furniture. Verse 7 is the high priest's vestiture. And what he's going to wear is he represents everything that the tabernacle represents. So there's this progression that you find even in the things that he's requesting. There's a purpose behind it all. Now let's go on to verse 8 and 9. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the, what's the word? Pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture. So you shall make it. Now, I want you to notice, probably central to this, one of the most important things to take away. The tabernacle is God's idea, not theirs. They weren't sitting down there going, you know what? God's way up on that hill and we'll never be good enough to go up there. Guys, we've got to figure out a way to get God to be able to come down here with us. They weren't having that conversation. It was God who brought them up there and said, I don't want to stay far off. I don't want to be aloof from you. I want to be among you. Here is what I'm asking. You bring these materials together so that we can build this place so that I can inhabit this place among my people. The tabernacle is God's idea, not man's. Man was not trying to find his way to God. God was making his way to man. Again, why is that important? Because patterns, this is the way it's always been. It's the way it's always going to be. Worship has a very intentional pattern because God always has these patterns. I mean, you think about patterns from the very beginning of creation. We've talked about that when we talked about creation. What do you have? Seven days of creation, right? That's a very that number that jumps out at you as being this very biblical number. But not only that, there's a pattern even within creation. For the first three days, God separates things. For the next three days, he fills what he separated, right? So separates light from darkness, separates the waters above from the waters below, separates dry land from the water. Then what does he do the next three days? He fills in the same exact order what he separated. So day one, light, darkness. Day four, sun, moon, and stars. Day two, waters above from the waters below. Day five, birds of the air, fish of the sea. Day three, land, dry land from water. Day six, land animals and man. Okay? Patterns. 
and then you have Sabbath day, which is another thing that's very interesting. Have you ever considered what day was man created on? Day six. Have you ever considered that after God created man and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, man's first 24 hours was spent doing nothing but reveling in God and his creation? Because his first day was the Sabbath day. His first day was just to sit there and enjoy with God what he was enjoying. Why is that important? Patterns. Because God is all about the relationship and us enjoying him and understanding that it's a relationship with him where we get our value and our benefit. It's not from the things we do and the things we accumulate and the kind of influence and power we have. It's him. It's this relationship. And the scripture shows us this over and over and over again. So we see these patterns, whether it's creation or the ark, talking about Noah's ark. God told him exactly how to build it. God's promise to Abraham had a plan. God's deliverance from Egypt had a plan. And now, why is it so important to do it God's way? Because with God, everything has meaning. There's an important truth that we have to glean here. God desires to be known by you. Did you hear me? God desires to be known by you and I. The purpose of the law that we've spent these last few weeks looking at is not to bring about obedience. The whole purpose of the law was to create the protocol of worship. Did you hear that? Why is that important? Because if you don't understand the purpose of the law, then you think it's all about obedience, and all of a sudden you just become a very religious person. But the whole point of the law and understanding the necessity of the law is because God wants us to be able to come into his presence. But to come into his presence, there has to be perfection. But to have perfection, our sin has to be dealt with. And the only way that sin can be dealt with is death. And so God is introducing to them a sacrificial system where a substitute can be put in place of the person who needs to die for their sins. Why is that important? Patterns, patterns established early in Scripture. You see, you're going to see a whole lot of parallels as we begin to move from this text from week to week. We're going to see parallels back to creation. You're going to see parallels back to Passover. You're going to see parallels forward to the Gospels. You're going to see parallels to the finality of all of it. In other words, when God brings about his kingdom and the end of this world comes about and God establishes his kingdom forever and ever and we enter into this eternity, we're going to see these patterns developing that show us God's intentionality for that from the very beginning. So my question to you today is this. How are you centering yourself around God? Let me ask you another question. What do you put your faith in? Let me ask it a different way. What do you believe in? What do you really believe in? And when I say believe in, what do I mean? What do you believe really gives you value? What do you believe gives you worth? What do you believe makes you who you are? And here's the thing. We could sit here and ponder this, but it's actually a very easy answer. And there's one way to find it out real quick. You don't even have to think about it. Go look at your bank account 
and go look at your calendar. Because what you believe in, you spend your money on, and you spend your time on it. So you can say whatever you want to say. Oh, I believe in this. I believe my value comes from this. But if it doesn't reflect in your pocketbook, and it doesn't reflect in your day timer, it's not true. Because we spend our money and we spend our time on things that we believe in. I think it's very important before you ever get to the tabernacle to understand how God first presented this to them. I want you to give to me, but only if you want to. The request has never changed. God still says, I want you to give, but I want you to give from a joyful, cheerful heart. I don't want to give out of compulsion. I don't want you to give because you think you have to give. I want you to give because in your heart, you know who I am. And you realize that every good thing you have came from me. And that if you give me what I'm asking of you, you won't be able to hold all the blessings that I'm going to give to you. Why? Because that's who I am. And it's who I want you to be. I want you to benefit from this relationship with me. Every other religion of the world, their God lives up on a hill or their God is in a tomb somewhere or go to these other, you know, their gods are on stars, moon, whatever it may be. But notice Yahweh said, I'm not content to live on a mountain away from my people. I'm going to make a way that I can come and live among them. Why is that important? Patterns. Whenever you see the Gospel of John open up, that's what it tells us. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, far off. And the Word became flesh. And the Word literally in Greek is, and it tabernacled among us. God came down off the lofty hill, and he got dirty with his people. Why? Because he wants his people to benefit from a relationship with him. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the great perspective that scripture points to. When we understand what it is you're calling us to, and we're understanding the commitment that you're calling us to, this beautiful picture of this wedding ceremony and a covenant being entered into, and this feast that happens, and then you want to come and live with us, Lord, it reminds us of the gospel. It does. It reminds us of the gospel. I remember of uh, Revelation where it says, Jesus, you said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. And I will dwell there in his heart. We see those same exact parallels. The gospel is the New Testament revealed. Old Testament revealed. It's the fruition of all the shadows and the forecasting that we've seen through scriptures. It's the realization of all the promises of God. It is the physical becoming the spiritual reality. Jesus is God in the flesh who came to dwell among us so that we may benefit, so that we may be made right, so that we could enter into the presence of God and we didn't need a priest or a big veil to protect ours, ourselves from God. 
So, Lord, I don't know exactly where every person in this room stands with you, but you do and they do. And I pray that there would just be some honesty between hearts today. Or not to bring condemnation because that's not what you're about. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But I just pray that every person would reflect on the sincerity and the reality of their salvation and their commitment and where they're finding themselves. Lord, we pray in the name of Jesus that you would add a blessing to the teaching of your word, that it would bring forth fruit, and that fruit would be both a fruit of repentance and a fruit of restoration. Lord, thank you for loving us. Thank you for coming down out of the mountain. Thank you for wanting to dwell inside of us, each one of us. Literally, the tabernacle has become our own bodies when we have Jesus as our Lord and Savior. God, what a beautiful reality. What a beautiful truth. I pray that we would reflect on that, revel in that, feast on that, believe it, and live it. We ask this in Jesus' name.